This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. A look at the connection between sleep and longevity and the emotional toll on victims of fraud. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Millions of American and Canadian workers are close to retiring with no savings. The latest U.S. Census Bureau finds 50% of women and almost as many men age 55 to 66 have reported they have no retirement savings. Last year, Americans had put away on average 71,000, while 3 in 10 reported they had less than 50,000. The situation in Canada is similar. 16% of people aged 55 to 64 have literally zero savings, and a further 32% have less than 50,000 saved up. Too much salt is killing us, according to a new report from the World Health Organization. The world is not on track to reduce sodium intake by 30% by 2025, and the WHO warns if we don't take drastic steps now to reduce our salt intake, it could lead to millions of unnecessary deaths. The agency's director general says most countries haven't adopted mandatory sodium reduction policies, leaving people at risk of heart attack, stroke, and other health problems. The agency is calling on manufacturers to implement benchmarks for sodium content in food. It's no secret most seniors want to age in place, but most homes are not designed for older adults. The latest census finds that of the 94% of the 115 million homes in the U.S., just 10% are ready to accommodate older residents. They lack an entryway with no steps, no bedroom and bathroom on the first floor, and a bathroom without accessibility features. So it is not surprising that about one in three adults say they will need to make major repairs or modifications as they or other family members age. In this International Women's Month, the United Nations chief said this week that women's rights are being abused, threatened, and violated around the world. Antonio Guterres told this week's opening session of the Commission on the Status of Women that progress, won over decades, is vanishing because the patriarchy is fighting back. He also says gender equality will not be achieved for 300 years on the current track. A Pennsylvania woman who went missing more than 30 years ago and whose family believes she was dead has been found alive in a Puerto Rico nursing home where she's lived for many years. When 83-year-old Patricia Copta went missing, she'd been married to her husband Bob for 20 years, who says he was in shock after this week's news. In 1999, seven years after she went missing, nursing home employees found Patricia wandering the streets of Puerto Rico, and she refused to discuss her private life or background. A cruise ship from Europe had dropped her off on one of the beaches. I'm Christine Ross. Those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We set the clocks ahead an hour overnight, returning to daylight saving time. 
It's no secret that a good night's sleep is important for overall mental and physical health, and in fact, it's been proven that irregular sleep can lead to heart disease and a host of other health issues. New research presented recently at the American College of Cardiology annual meeting suggests that our bedtime habits could be key to a longer life. We reached sleep specialist Colleen Carney, director of the Sleep Lab at Toronto Metropolitan University, for reaction. The age-old question is how much sleep, how many hours do we require? I think that a lot of what's said in the media is really confusing because seven to eight hours, which is what you're going to hear, is an average. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, there's many of your listeners who are going to find that eight hours is not enough. They actually need more. And there are some listeners who uh, seven hours is, is too much. They actually are a shorter sleeper. And so the seven to eight hours does not work for everyone. That that duration also changes on a daily basis based on your activity level, so that's going to matter, and a little bit due to genetics. So I think the best way to try and figure out, you know, how long you need is to really track your sleep over, I would say, even two weeks and see what is the average that you produce over the course of those two weeks. Say it's seven hours. After you get those seven hours, do you wake up relatively refreshed or an hour, I'd say an hour after you wake up, are you relatively refreshed? If the answer is yes, then that's probably fine for you. If you're finding yourself falling asleep during the day, it probably is not enough and you should add 30 minutes. When it comes to cardiovascular disease, though, um, is there some benchmark that we can point to to say, you know, lack of sleep or too much sleep can be a contributing factor? Yeah, so um, I, I'm going to say it's it's pretty much the same. So studies tell us that too much or too little um, sleep is the key here. Um, but unfortunately, with this research, we don't know also whether or not it's too little time in bed and too much time in bed because it might not be sleep per se, uh, it might be um, the inactivity. So I would say that um, if you're going to look at all of the research, a good cutoff would be if you're, if it's below six hours, generally speaking, or if it's above nine hours, generally speaking, then those two levels are actually associated with negative health effects, which includes cardiovascular disease, but includes many other illnesses as well. The other aspect is staying asleep, and I know speaking from experience, the older we get, sleeping through the night does seem more elusive with these random 4 a.m. wake-ups for no reason. <laughs> okay, so now if you have a random 4 a.m., then what I want you to do is to, to look in your evening. Is there any dozing off in the evening? And the reason why I say that is because for many people, um, you know, myself included, that my wheel of fortune and my jeopardy has a little bit some lapses, <laughs> some lapses. So when what you do is if you're if you're napping during that time, I know that's not really a nap, but it it is physiologically speaking. Then it can burn off your sleep drive, which will not allow you to go all the way through to the morning hours. So that's one thing. The second thing is whether or not your evenings, uh, and it's related. If your evenings are incredibly sedentary then you're cutting off your drive for deep sleep really early on in the day. And sometimes you just really don't have enough sleep drive built up to sustain you all the way through. If they're getting in bed at 9, then waking up at 4 is actually not that unusual. That's a 7-hour mark. So what about people who have difficulty falling asleep? Is it best to set a, a definite bedtime routine so your brain knows, ah, this is when 
you know, I need to relax and fall asleep. I think, yeah, I think we all need bedtime routines. I think the best sleep advice you could do is think about what we do for kids. And they, they have that routine, right? I mean, they have everything right up to the to the bath and the books and the this and the that. We really do have to wind down. But what I will say is the bedtime should not be set in stone. I think the wake time should be when you wake up in the morning. That's needed for a clock. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you've had a less active day or if, you've had a, if you have a lot on your mind, that when your bedtime rolls around, sometimes people go to bed just because it's the clock time and you're not ready for bed. And many people have a sense of whether they're ready for bed or not, but they just force themselves to go to bed um, anyway. So when we talk about overall life expectancy and a good night's sleep, do we have any idea in terms of numbers of how much longer women can live and men? I know obviously it's going to be different because of physiological differences, but can we actually put a, a, you know, a steadfast rule by saying you know, four extra years for women or, or is that just a, a, you know, a crapshoot in terms of how much longer we can gain from good night's sleep throughout our lives? I, I think this is a really, I think this is really difficult. I, I, I know there's some recent, uh, there's a recent study specifically that, that tried to quantify that. And I really disagree with those types of studies because a lot of them are based on, um, uh, sort of collecting data on many, many different people with, with questions that are incredibly limited, right? So, you know, how much sleep do you get or do you think you get enough sleep? But these types of questions and they'll find some statistical results that they can then quantify. Um, well, these people, you know, um, lived this long. So I disagree with that approach. I really do. Um, I also think that for insomnia disorder, the disorder where people really put too much emphasis on sleep and worrying about sleep and, and dying early because of sleep, et cetera. So I do want to kind of temper some of that, that thinking. I do think that if you're somebody who um, has, um, uh, a, an untreated sleep disorder, something like sleep apnea, something like, you know, shift work disorder, uh, insomnia disorder, you're more prone to all kinds of uh, issues, um, which can include, you know, statistically probably an earlier death. Um, but worrying about insomnia and worrying about sleep is also counterproductive and puts you at risk for mental disorders and all kinds of other problems. So, you, you know, you need to sleep to live, but you can't live to sleep either. In your work, did you see, I, obviously you did during the pandemic, I mean, one of the number one complaints from people was that their sleep was disrupted because of the anxiety due to the unknown. Yeah, I mean, so it was definitely disrupted because of that. But the thing that people don't, um, I think that our sleep health IQ is is kind of low, unfortunately, because there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. And the fact of the matter is, during the pandemic, it wasn't just anxiety about the unknown. We also cut out our um, our exposure to daylight by not having that commute. We cut out a lot of the regularity of when we wake up. We spent more time in bed. Um, we got a lot less um, sunlight exposure. Um, we were less active, most of us. And so there were all of these key ingredients into the sleep regulatory system were um, were impaired in a way that people didn't take note of. Dr. Colleen Carney, thank you so much for this. You're very welcome. That was sleep specialist Colleen Carney, director of the Sleep Lab at Toronto Metropolitan University. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, March is Fraud Prevention Month across Canada. 
we look beyond just the financial toll on victims. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. The impact of fraud on the elderly can be more emotional than financial. We're hearing more about fraud cases targeting older adults like the grandparent or romance scams and cybercrime. While the number of reported cases rose 40% last year, many more go unreported. But we rarely hear about the non-financial cost to the victims who are dealing with trauma, guilt and shame that can linger far beyond the crime. We speak with registered clinical psychologist Laura Devlin to learn more. For the older adults that are experiencing these things, it can bring about initially a, a level of shame and humiliation. If you're somebody who has, you know, lived a long life and you've considered yourself to be pretty savvy and confident in the world, to have something like this happen to you can really destabilize your sense of yourself, like whether you are, have good insight, good awareness, um, make good decisions, and it can destabilize your sense of the world around you, right? Seeing the world potentially as a more dangerous place than you realized. And, you know, of course, we should definitely try to encourage people not to be embarrassed, not to be ashamed because scams can happen to absolutely everyone. And the people that scam us are professionals and they are really, really good at um, getting one over on us. And they can trigger like emotions that are really powerful that make us um, not think clearly in, in, in making decisions. But yeah, I think I think it can be a very emotional and destabilizing experience all, all around. We know that that population, um, that demographic already is dealing with isolation post-pandemic where it, it, I mean, that was laid bare that the isolation that seniors feel, whether it's in their own home um, or whether it's in in a senior's um, facility. But if you've got this broken trust now and the internet is their gateway to their social and their interaction and they then all of a sudden shy away from the internet, does that even create more of this social isolation? Absolutely. I think it can create more isolation, higher levels of anxiety and depression. We are social creatures, right? We evolved to live in small tribes of about 150 people where there was a lot of social cohesion and connection. You knew the people around you. And now we're in a much different scenario. Just a few thousand years later, we're living in these large societies where our access to people is through these technological means. And having something like this happen to you can create a ton of distrust, a ton of anxiety about who you can trust. What happens when it comes from within your own family when you're defrauded by a loved one? Is it a different set of emotional processes that they're going through? Yeah, I would I would imagine. And I think it's probably true that they may experience a level of what um, clinicians call betrayal trauma. So betrayal trauma is typically associated with affairs and betrayals in love relationships. However, it I think would play out in these cases as well. It's when someone that you believe is trustworthy and that you love and you have a significant emotional investment with um, deceives you. And it destabilizes your whole sense of your world around you, right? Everything sort of crumbles. If if you can't trust someone who is supposed to protect you or supposed to be a loving member of your family, how can you trust anyone on the outside? And it can create PTSD-like symptoms. So it can create highly dysregulated emotions from like grief to rage. It can create flashbacks and triggers, lack of sleep, a sense of... Um, heightened anxiety and hypervigilance. Um, so I think it's particularly insidious when it's a family member that's defrauding another family member. 
And so if there is this shame with an older person who has been scammed and they kind of withdraw, what can family members look for as possible signs that there is something going on and they haven't been able to be honest about what's happened to them? Well, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, we we should all feel a sense of um, responsibility to each other and our families and to check in on our loved ones if there seem to be different in any way. So signs of depression or anxiety are things like social withdrawal, a seeming lack of interest in typical activities, like they're not attending their social gatherings or participating in activities they used to participate in. You notice sort of a flat or low mood or a sense of hopelessness or people saying uh things that seem a little out of character, like what's the point or um, that they don't have any energy or they're not sleeping well. I think it's really important, no matter if there's been a fraud or not, to check in with our loved ones, especially those that are older or maybe isolated about how they're doing emotionally, if those types of things are shared. Um, and you know, to normalize and to to destigmatize being scammed, if that's something that someone has experienced, that, that you shouldn't be embarrassed about it. It's not. It's anyone can be vulnerable to it, and it's not a sign of lack of intelligence. And from from your practice, are you seeing an increase in these cases of fraud, whether it's romance or or you know cyber? Yeah, I, I've I've I see an increase in people reporting. Uh, um, having these types of experiences. And I also think an increase just in general as society has shifted, especially through the pandemic, in just a greater level of distrust that is affecting people, not feeling that same level of social cohesion that you may have experienced at other times in your life. So I do think that there is more of this going on. There's more about it in the media. We have to become more educated about it, but it can also create um, a level of distrust that can be damaging a little to our emotional health um, because we do need to have a level of trust to operate in the world and to make friendships and and rely on others. So it's a tricky balance, you know, between having good psychological health, but also protecting yourself. So what would your best advice be to someone who, who has been the victim of fraud and is about to go through these almost grief-like stages? What, what would your best advice be to them? I mean, first and foremost, self-compassion. Try to see yourself as an intelligent and savvy person that just was mistreated and a victim of a crime, right? If someone burgled your house, you wouldn't feel responsible for it. You would you would feel rightly victimized and violated. And that should be the same with fraud. It's not your fault. You're not responsible for other people's um, predatory behavior. And to talk about it, talk to others about your experience and have self-compassion for uh, if it's a love scam, the grief you might feel over an imagined relationship or if it's something else, um, the the sadness or anger you might feel about losing money or being mistreated. Laura Devlin, thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Laura Devlin, registered clinical psychologist and owner of the Beaches Therapy Group. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.